Just because you write a song, just because you're the author of a song, doesn't mean that you understand everything about that song. Any artist, whether it's a painter, whether it's a, uh, a writer, uh, whether it's a musician, um, will tell you, I, I didn't know where that came from, where that image came from, where that lyric came from, where that melodic change came from. It just was somehow there, but I didn't have any conscious um, intent to make this happen. I didn't really write that. It was just there, and I was able to grab it or stop it. Um, and so a piece of work that you write down when you're a singer is not going to reveal itself just by looking at it. Uh, it's not obvious. You can see that in the movie that's playing now, Amy, a documentary about her life, and there's a, uh, a moment in that film where um, she is recording her song, Back to Black, and she's in, a record he's in, she's in the recording studio, and she's in a kind of tiny alcove, and she's kind of scrunched, singing in this half closet, uh, isolated from uh, everything that's going on around her. And she sings the song, and it's you know, her most intense, despairing, defeated, final kind of song. And she gets to the end of it, and the end of the song is back, back, back. And as she performs it, as she records it, it's back. And there's a full three seconds, back. And another three seconds, back. And that's the end of it. And when the song is finished, she says, it got, it got a little upsetting there at the end, didn't it? In other words, for the first time, this song revealed itself to her as she sang it. She understood in a way that she hadn't quite before just how dangerous and just how um, threatening this song actually was. It's very rare to see that happen with a performer, with an artist, with a creative person to see that person understanding what she's done. Um, Bob Dylan once said about uh, his song, Like a Rolling Stone, uh, it was like a ghost came and gave me the song, and then the ghost went away uh, and left it. Well, you know, I didn't write it. Again, that, that feeling, and that's maybe the most, you know, melodramatic or mystical description of an absolutely commonplace uh, experience for any creative person. Um, a creative person opens herself up to the world. She allows the world to invade her. And sometimes that will happen and, and it will not leave behind anything uh, concrete, anything specific, anything that actually you, know, you can hold on to. And sometimes um, it will give you a whole song in, uh, in a few seconds. And you, you simply can't attribute that to will. You can't attribute that to intent. You can attribute that to your own sensitivity, your ability to open yourself up to what's around you and, and to be its recipient. She talked a lot about the people who inspired her and who taught her, who she went to school with. Uh, she talked in one interview, she said that 
When she was six years old, she was in love with Kali Minogue, a British pop singer. Um, then she said, I graduated to the Church of Madonna. She said, by the time I was 14, I was only listening to hip-hop and jazz, then gospel music. And she talked about Mahalia Jackson. Uh, she talked about Ella Fitzgerald. And interestingly, she said, she never stood out for me. She could carry a tune. I think most people would say, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald could carry a tune. But she wasn't that important to me. It was Sarah Vaughan. Sarah Vaughan, she said, she was an instrument. She was like a clarinet. Dinah Washington. And the interviewer says, you mean Dinah Washington was more important to you than, than Ella Fitzgerald? And she just, yes. <laughs> Billie Holiday. Um, she talked about um, Colleen Anderson, the soul singer. Um, she talked about other gospel singers. She talked, she always insisted it was Thelonious Monk, the great jazz pianist, who taught her how to phrase, how to get inside of a song. You've written the song, you've heard the song, it's there in front of you, but how do you get inside of it? How do you get behind it? How do you sing it as if you've always known it? How do you sing, how do you, how do you track the melody? How do you open yourself to a rhythmic change that will change the song for you? That she learned from Thelonious Monk. And she talked really interestingly about how it wasn't until later in her life, and you know, she had a very short life, so later in her life, and she's talking, this, this is, you know, she's 23, 24 years old, and she's saying, it was later in my life, she means when she's 18, 19, 20, that I started listening to girl groups, and I started listening to Motown, and I listened to the Ronettes, and I listened to the Shirelles, and I listened to the Shangri-Las, and the Shangri-Las she focused on, and she talked about Shangri-Las, uh, four white girls from Queens in the uh, mid-60s, whose most famous recording was leader of the pack, but who had many, many hits um, throughout, throughout the mid-60s for about two, three years. Their lead singer was named Mary Weiss. And she talked about their song, um, I Can Never Go Home Anymore. And she said, that's the saddest song in the world. That's the most depressing song in the world. I broke up with my boyfriend, and I put that song on on repeat, and I listened to it for two weeks drinking out of a bottle of Jack Daniels over and over and over again. And she said, this is what happens in this song. Uh, there's a girl, she's lonely, she meets a guy, she tells her mother that she's going off with this guy, and her mother says, no, no, you're too young, you can't do that. She says, I never loved you anyway, you've always tried to ruin my life, you've always tried to control me, I'm going, goodbye. Of course, the guy throws her over, very quickly, she goes home. Her mother has died of grief. She can never go home anymore. It sounds melodramatic as the Shangri-Las do it. It's just death. And all their greatest songs were about death. But that sense of craft, that sense of getting inside a song, of finding something that nobody ever knew was there, she did that throughout her career. But it never came home to me until after she died an album came out called uh, Amy Winehouse at the BBC. 
It's just a collection of her recordings uh, for BBC-sponsored concerts, mostly. But at the very end of this album, there's a, uh, a performance that she recorded uh, in a DJ studio. She's got a new album out. She's going around giving interviews to DJs. And you know she's willing to perform right there in the studio if they want it. So she comes with a couple of musicians. And I heard this song, To Know Him Is To Love Him, and I was just flabbergasted. To Know Him Is To Love Him was one of the corniest, most embarrassing early rock and roll hits from 1958. It was Phil Spector's first record from Los Angeles. And it was this lugubrious, um, um, treacly, well, very well-produced record um, with Phil Spector, Phil Spector being you know, very short, doesn't really have a chin, he's 19 years old, he's already losing his hair. Um, in order to balance the group, he gets a friend of his named Marshall Lieb, who is tall, dark, and handsome, to balance the group, and then they have a girl singer in the middle, and that Klebard. And Marshall Lieb and Phil Spector are going da-da-da-da-da-da-da, well, Annette Klebert says, to know, no, know him is to love, love, love him, and I do, and I do. And, you know, it's, it's a catchy song. And so, you know, I remember being 13 years old and listening to it and being embarrassed with myself <laughs> listening to it because I couldn't, you know, just turn it off. It was just too enticing somehow. So here is Amy Winehouse. I want you to hear what she does with this, the way she makes deep soul music out of this corny little ditty this corny little teenage song, about the way she makes it into a blues, about she, the way she makes it about death. Let's listen to that. This is from 2006. You know, you can, you can imagine her hearing the original record and saying, there's, there's more to this song than these people ever knew was here. I'm going to find out what it is. And you reach a point when you say the only way to understand this song, what it has, what it could say, is to sing it, is to perform it. And there's no guarantee that you will find the secrets that song holds or be able to communicate them to other people. But that's exactly what happened here. You know, one of the people who listened to Amy Winehouse, who listened closely, listened passionately, was Mary Weiss, the lead singer of the Shangri-Las from 1964, long before Amy Winehouse was born. And she listened, and she watched, and she saw the way as Amy Winehouse's life became a train wreck. She saw the way that people uh, made fun of her, uh, the way that people like Jay Leno, uh, who had had her on his show and said, this is that Amy Winehouse, the, the sensation from England. And she would perform, and he would cover her with praise, and then she begins to, her life begins to collapse, and she just becomes a punchline to cheap jokes. And Mary Weiss said, I don't understand what pleasure you get from kicking people while they're down. I could have helped her. In other words, I could have told her what I went through to sing the songs that I sang, and I know what she went through to sing the songs that she sang. Um, Mary Weiss was once asked, how could you, as a 
as a 16-year-old sing all these songs about tragedy and death and suicide. And she said, oh, she said it very guilelessly in, in, her, in her 50s. She said, oh, I had so much pain inside of me that that was no trouble at all. In other words, for the first time, uh, a song, given a song that someone else had written, someone who was simpatico, who understood her, uh, who understood what she could do, uh, given a song, she could become somebody else and speak honestly. I don't think Amy Winehouse ever had to become anybody else. Uh, it's not like her songs were autobiographical. No real art is autobiography. might start there. It always goes somewhere else. Um, you know, people say, what would it feel like to care that much, to be that passionate, to want that much? And that's what you hear in the recording that we listen to. Uh, someone asking those questions and finding those answers. Um, and making other people responding to that song ask those same questions, which um, continue forever. So thank you all so much for coming today. Thank you.